Hello, and welcome to The Trigger Warning. Here at Queer Pressure Podcast, we try to put everything that might be problematic right up at front so you can decide if this is maybe an episode you want to sit out. The following episode contains mentions of racism, Islamophobia, xenophobia, homophobia, sexism, racial profiling, and police brutality. If you would rather not hear us speak about these topics this week, that's fine. We'll see you next episode. Otherwise, welcome to our analysis of Nas and Malik. Hi, everybody. I'm Maddie Gray. And I'm Katherine Johnson, and you're listening to Queer Pressure Podcast. We are so glad you've decided to join us. Queer Pressure Podcast is a critical exploration of queerness in media as an act of radical self-love. Because you know why? Why? The world is mean, and sometimes you just need a reminder that you are valid as your beautiful queer self. Oh, that's quite nice, huh? <laughs> I know you hate sentiment, but um, yeah, it's been a week, man. Has it? Well, um, so since our last episode was recorded, the Seattle City Council has voted by veto-proof majority to defund the police. Yes, fifty percent. Yeah. Yes, snaps for them. Yeah. I bring this up because although our timelines on Facebook have gone back to normal for the most part, um, Black Lives Matter. And for the foreseeable future, we're going to be making our media selections based on using our voices as white women to boost black art. Amplify black voices. Yes, please. We're, I think today will be the 50th day of demonstrations in Portland. That is yeah. really impressive. Yeah. Um, to anyone who thinks that it's gone back to normal. We've mentioned this on the podcast before, but our government really does think that we will just fizzle out, that we mm-hmm. will get bored of this movement and move on. Um, and it's really important that we don't, that we continue to call for the arrest of Breonna Taylor's murderers and the convictions of the murderers of George Floyd and anybody else who's perpetuating racial violence. And unfortunately, our police systems are rife with racial violence. So if you can go out and protest, uh, there are still protests out there. Go ahead and join them. Yeah. If If that is not something you're comfortable with, you can also continue to share things on social media write your city council members, find out who decides the budget for your city. There's so much to still be done and we all have a role we need to play. And I would suggest really thinking about why you don't feel comfortable protesting. I think a lot of people have fallen back on that where it's like, oh, it's dangerous. I don't want to do it. And me and my friend who go out every night have been talking a lot about this, that We really don't have very many friends who go do this every day. We're in the very small percentage of people. And I think that's ridiculous. I don't think that there's anything that special about me to have driven myself to go out, you know, 30 plus nights and have been in these dangerous situations. I would reexamine whether or not you feel comfortable going out to protest. Right. And try to get to the root of why it is you feel uncomfortable. And if that reason is because you feel like you'll get hurt um that's a valid fear i'll give you that but 
the vast majority of people out here are not getting hurt. These v- protests are not violent from the side of the protesters. It's- I mean, depends how you define hurt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I've been certainly damaged. Uh, tear gas hurts a lot. And all of us have PTSD. But this, at this point, a lot of the rhetoric has changed to talking about how this isn't like protest anymore. This is war. Like those of us who are out there are warriors and while we're not inflicting damage on the opposing side we are being damaged on our own side because Mm -hmm. they are inflicting violence but it's fucking it's star wars okay (laughs) wait what it's star wars what if luke was just like i don't know what if i get hurt i'm gonna go back to my moisture farm on tattooing fair oh no everybody in coruscant is saying that if we blow up the death star that that's violence so let's not do it. Let's just sit around and tweet from home and just hope that people, uh, Darth Vader changes policies. <laughs> let's just run somebody against Darth Vader. Yeah. And let the bureaucracy take care of it. No, that's not how it works. It's Change it works. happens because people demand it. Yeah, because, I mean, we all just have seen Hamilton now that it's on Disney Plus and uh, as, <laughs> as was shown in that, movie the this very country was created by just a group of men uh standing peacefully during daylight hours on the sidewalk (laughs) legally just asking king george please can we be our own country and um, obviously that's how it works because the the only way to deliver a message is if it's completely peaceful and law-abiding and here's the thing like if you're against these protests because of violence quote-unquote on the side of the protesters or looters or rioters like one you're probably not listening to this podcast let's be real mm-hmm. um but two have we ever gotten change or justice by just asking nicely for it that's never been like we've been asking nicely for decades for four you know years. where we're at nowhere further than we were before no we are not now, Catherine, what are you drinking this morning? <laughs> I'm drinking coffee. <laughs> Any particular kind of coffee this morning? The pot that I brewed last night. Oh, no. Is it cold? I microwaved it. Oh, jeez. Now I feel like a bougie-ass bitch. What are you drinking? Because I made cold brew. Mm. Uh-huh. It's really nice. Uh, it's a local Seattle-based coffee company not called starbucks it's those are really not. rare local <laughs> in seattle yeah. yeah um and just steeped some cold brew for 24 48 hours then put it in the fridge and it's fantastic i also have here a red juice that my roommate juiced and told me i had to take some upstairs for the podcast so uh shout out to matt i guess for making matt is juice. just a little house husband mm-hmm Sometimes he makes me dinner. He is nesting. <laughs> it's okay. So am I. This is coronavirus. Yeah, for real. Coronavirus. Oh, I realized like three or four episodes ago, we mentioned like something where it's like, you can't drink. You have a coronavirus test today. And I never told everyone that I don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. So your I, update is you don't have COVID-19. Well, at least the the episode like four weeks ago where I mentioned I was getting a coronavirus test that day. I did not have it that day. 
it came congratulations back congratulations for you. that day back in the past yeah. i hope you still don't have covid don't we all what are we doing this week Catherine? why we're doing a film called nas and malik we sure are nas and malik is a 2015 american drama film written and directed by jay dockendorf dockendorf I know, I love his name. And starring Curtis Cook Jr. and Kerwin Johnson Jr. It premiered at the South by Southwest Film Festival on March 14th, 2015, and was acquired by Wolf Releasing, which gave it a theatrical release in 2016. The Rough Cut received the Tribeca Film Institute's IWC Filmmaker Award in 2014. It has a 5.8 out of 10 on IMDb, a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes, and 65% on Metacritic. And if you'd like to watch it along with us, it's streaming for free on Hulu. So speaking of these scores, you know, because <laughs> yeah. like the last few movies movies we've done have had like very high Rotten Tomato scores because we chose this movie because it shows up on a lot of lists of queer black representation, like the movies you should see. It's on all of the lists. And then turns out it's only an okay movie yeah yeah where after i watched it i went is that it and then went and started doing the um research and pretty much everyone else was also like like i think the new york times was saying you know it's a it's a movie without any bite and it's Mm -hmm. pretty widely regarded regarded as just a meh movie (laughs) Yeah, but it was too late to change it. But we will still talk about it. We'll, we'll still amplify the story. Absolutely. Yeah, because it's a story worth being told, even if it's not particularly artful. Yeah, it's not awful. It's not bad. It's just there, sandwiched <laughs> between what we've watched. It's not. Yeah, especially after like Pariah and the Watermelon Woman and the Color Purple. Yeah. This one really just fell flat in comparison to those yeah. three. Oh, yeah. So what's it about, Catherine? It is about a day in the life of two black closeted Muslim teenagers, Nas and Malik, while they sell lottery tickets and other low value items to put towards their college funds on the streets of New York. Their small time schemes accidentally lead them into the crosshairs of FBI surveillance. So very interesting premise. Yeah. Yeah. The premise sounds great. Mm -hmm. So why isn't this movie great? (laughs) I guess we can explain part of that by saying the bad, the yeah. Problematic. So at the beginning of every podcast, every every episode, we try to um, take apart the bad or the problematic things about the media that we're analyzing, so that we can set that aside and then absorb the media as a whole as its good bits. So let's get the bad out of the way. And I agree that it's just pretty much this one thing mm-hmm. that it was created by a straight white man. Who wrote and directed. Yeah. And it, to me, it feels like Jay Dockendorf did very little research. It doesn't like if I'm like cupping my face because I'm so frustrated because this movie's premise is so good. Mm-hmm. And it just does not feel well researched. It's full of like these vague buzzwords. Like they talk about like halal and haram, but like. They don't explain what that is. They don't actually go any deeper than that. And let me be clear, like, I'm not saying that straight white men can't tell these stories and that they can't be effective in telling these stories. They can if they're well-researched and are 
surrounded by people who are involved in the communities that they're telling the story about. To be fair, it this was um, inspired by a conversation he had with a closeted black Muslim man, but it still does feel quite under-researched. Um, some analyses I saw said that he, knowing that he was an outsider, probably added to the approach of why he doesn't get that deep into anything like he kind of felt like he wasn't allowed to but um you brought up tangerine before we started recording that Mm -hmm. this felt similar to tangerine for you which is uh i think our fourth episode and it's a movie about that was created by a white straight cisgender man but it's a movie about two black transgender sex workers and it's a day in the life in la Mm-hmm. Um, and that movie goes there <laughs> and, um, yeah, but, but that movie is extremely well researched and, um, and it was collaborative, which this one does not feel collaborative. Yeah. yeah. But that's just, you know, that's proof that a white straight man can make these movies. We should be leaving, you know, amplifying black people to make these movies for themselves, but we're saying that like, just because he's white, isn't an excuse of why this isn't good. He could have done it a lot better. Yeah, unfortunately true. All right, let's talk about the good things in this movie. I want to start with gay Muslim representation because let's be real, there is not a lot of positive or even neutral representation of Muslims in American media. Let alone black, let alone gay. Especially black and gay, yeah. Most of the Muslim representation we see in TV and movies either paints this picture of terrorism or radical fundamentalism, or becomes like the butt of a lot of really insensitive jokes. That's Mm -hmm. not cool. So to see two Muslim men as the main characters of a full-length film is a good thing, because representation is important. As I was watching, and I really only remembered a couple other things, you know, it only reminded me of um, Master of None a little bit, Mm -hmm. and I was brought back to an episode of Degrassi, Oh, but, fun. <laughs> but that just shows how little representation we have of Muslims in mainstream media. And representation is so fucking important. According to the 2018 census, the nation's population is about 40% non-white. And according to Pew Research Center, by 2055, the country's racial makeup is expected to change so dramatically that there will be no racial majority. I think white people should go away. <laughs> not 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 violently. I mean I think we should leave. Well, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, let's just go. Let's go back to Sweden. But even with like this huge chunk of our country that is non-white very few protagonists in tv and movies are actually written for people of color or queer people Mm -hmm. let alone queer people of color yeah only about two out of 10 lead film actors which is like 19.8 percent i think they said were people of color in 2017, which was a huge jump up from the year before when people of color accounted for like 13.9% of of protagonists. Yeah. And this is according to the UCLA Hollywood Diversity Report. Because 
the argument so many people make is that like, well, we want it, you know, to be realistic. We want it to show a realistic makeup. And so they add, you know, a tokenism black mm-hmm. character in, but it's, but we're talking lead characters. 40% of them should be non-white. Yeah. And, a, and 20% should be queer. At least. And portrayals of minority people in media really affect how public opinion perceives these minorities, particularly in homogenous places like the place where we grew up. And when minority identities aren't normalized, these characters start showing up in Hollywood only as exaggerated stereotypes and caricatures, which sounds a whole lot like, hmm, something we've been talking about. Minstrel shows. Especially with... Like the caricatures of like the mammy and the dandy and things like that. Those types of stereotypes get stronger if you don't feature lead roles as people of color and other minorities. Something like um, Dear Black People, where mm-hmm. or Dear White People, excuse me, uh, <laughs> where the entire cast is black for the most part. What was very interesting about that show and is so different than other shows because usually you'll have like one black woman and because you only have the one tokenistic black woman she has to be the symbol for all black women she has to be perfect Mm -hmm. she has to embody everything perfectly but you have something like dear white people where there are so many different uh like women of color that you can see the different types of women of color where you have the main character who's uh vocally militant but is secretly dating a white guy and doesn't want people to know that she listens to taylor swift you have complexities in these people because like they don't have to represent everybody are just like anybody else who is complex and has you know secrets and faults and everything yeah we should have multiple black women and everything but also not seeing yourself represented in elements of pop culture can really affect mental health But then that is something interesting about this movie, that it's not what I thought it was going to be was like that there was one that it was one Muslim half of the couple and then like um, like a Christian black guy or something. But it's uh, both are black gay Muslim men and they're Mm -hmm. very different because they don't have to be the symbol for a black Muslim man. And so the majority of this movie is them having conversations and them arguing and not necessarily getting along (laughs) really ever that's true yeah they're mostly fighting but they are two very different people and uh which shows a more human outlook and Nas and Malik in this movie are at an intersection of all of these different minorities they're black they're gay and they're muslim and they're different from each other so I expected this really rich story to give me this intersection of culture, but this movie fell so flat in so many ways. I'm I know. so sad about it. Um, should we talk about the FBI agent plot? Line? Oh, we'll get there. Yeah. Oh, did you have um, something else? To I just want to add. I just have one more thing to add here. Go for it. Although this movie did fall flat, lackluster representation is, is still, still representation way than bad <laughs> repu- bad stereotypes just like I- i'm not offended by this movie at all like it was just it was all right so leading into this conversation about the fbi agent i'd like to start talking about racial profiling if that's what's okay that with you. what is it yet? racial profiling is something that happens all the time in america this is a good example of it but it's not the only example the stop and frisk laws of New York. 
An analysis by the NYCLU revealed that innocent New Yorkers have been subjected to police stops more than 5 million times since 2002, and that Black and Latinx communities are overwhelmingly targeted by these tactics. Nine out of every 10 people stopped and frisked in New York have been completely innocent. Have you seen... Sorry, this is only tangentially related. Okay. Uh, I should also have a source, but I just saw on Facebook this story about the other day. Um, I believe she was underage. A U.S. citizen, third generation Latinx girl, um, was randomly stopped because she was profiled and was <gasps> yes. yeah flown, but she didn't have her ID on her. So and they wouldn't give her a phone call, and she was flown from New York to Texas. Yes, I did. After see a this. random stop, before they were able to get her a phone call, and her mother had to hire a private investigator to find her. And these are U.S. citizens, U.S. Um, citizens, and like she was like low income mom, so like she had to actually privately hire a personal investigator. That's so wild. Like ICE is evil. Yeah, but um, that's just a modern example of racial profiling because it's really hard for people on the West Coast, I think, to understand it because we don't have stop and frisk. But Mm -hmm. um, it's extremely common in New York. It happens all the time to people of color. Um, All the time. And I've seen so many people now posting about, imagine when you were in college, if stop and frisk was common for people of your demographic in your college town. Would you be in jail right now? Yes, you would probably. Yeah, they're like most of my friends would be in jail. Like everyone walked around with, you know, weed and ADHD medication, you know, everything. Adderall. Yeah, Adderall. And so that's what we're dealing with. When people, when white people see it as like, well, if they didn't commit these crimes, they wouldn't be in jail more. It's the same crimes that everyone's committing. (laughs) Like, yeah, we're committing the crimes at the same rates. Yeah, people do drugs in college. Because mm-hmm. no meowing. Because people make mistakes in college, and p- white privilege is being able to have that be a fun story from when you were young, versus being the thing that upends your entire life. And especially with like the, a lot of the people that they would stop and frisk, they would find like marijuana on, right? Mm-hmm. But marijuana is getting legalized across the United States, yeah. like. And a lot of these sentences are not being commuted. Yeah. There are a lot of black and brown people in jail right now. For something that's now legal. For something that's legal. It's slavery. But. That's true. It is slavery. We've talked about that. Yeah. (laughs) But it is. It's legalized slavery. It's legalized slavery. Because slavery is still legal in the U.S. As long as you're a prisoner. Mm -hmm. And for Nas and Malik. They're doubly profiled, right? Because not only are they black men in New York, they're also Muslim. Muslim. And Nas wears a kufi, which is the Mm -hmm. hat that some Muslims wear. So they are, you can tell that they are Muslim from Mm -hmm. sight. Well, you can tell that Nas is for sure. Yeah. Um, For any of our very young Generation Z listeners, um, <laughs> this is probably obvious, but we'll say anyways. But uh, so stop and frisk. These sort of things are were created as a response to nine eleven. Um, mm-hmm. So it does make sense that it's they are particularly racially motivated in New York. I guess yeah. If we have any Generation Z listeners, you guys don't remember what 
the world was before 9-11 but right yeah so this is you know probably stuff everyone knows but we might as well say that obviously uh racial profiling towards muslim individuals in this country you know quintupled overnight more than that Mm -hmm. um following 9-11 because for those who can't remember it because we were so young it was so george bush the bush administration was so very different than trump where the second trump was elected you could watch you could completely cater yourself to only taking in news that agrees with your point of view you know you can watch Mm -hmm. the daily show and um msnbc and you can be on twitter and there's going to be a lot of people who agree with you and i can live in a city where i know that most people agree with me and it's the fun trendy thing to do when you meet someone new is talk shit about trump that's not how it was with the bush administration following 9-11 he there was just a lot of jingoism and it was really not okay to say anything against our president following that time even though most people didn't really like bush he wasn't even technically elected by a majority um before that but um the classic example being the dixie chick saying uh we are ashamed that the president is from our home state of texas and that absolutely destroyed their career versus now you know fuck donald trump probably has a million billion streams on spotify we forget about that but that is the history that we've now been sitting on for 20 years of why it was okay to treat muslims the way we do and so even though this movie takes place rather recently it's still the echoes of this just really weird period of you would turn on the news and the first thing they would say on the morning show was what our level of terror we were at that day. Yeah, Do you remember that? I forgot about that. Yeah, like I see that in like documentaries now and I'm like, I remember that. And that felt normal because we were like nine. I was like, I guess this is just what you talk about on the news. But like you would wake up and they'd say we're at terror level purple or whatever. <laughs> like mm-hmm. It was how I remember orange being the thing for a while. <laughs> it was what chance we had of being um, on the and other end of a terrorist attack that day every day um That's so wild but that really stoked xenophobic anti-muslim rhetoric that still exists today even if oh yeah but now it's kind of just more of an ingrained part of ourselves and so that's what we see happening here with the fbi following uh these mm. young muslim boys and just to add to that um although the rise of islamophobia started with the 9-11 terrorist attacks it's gotten worse since trump was elected in 2016 absolutely absolutely yeah like a lot worse everything it's all gotten worse everything's gotten worse (laughs) and although and gay bashing has been on the decline and some states are doing away with things like the gay panic defense which is basically uh I thought he was hitting on me, so I freaked out and blacked out and accidentally killed him. That kind of defense in assaults. I believe that's what... I know that's what they used for Brandon Tina, um, who's the subject of the film uh, Boys Don't Cry from, Mm. I believe, the 90s. I can't remember if they got away with it or not, but they used a gay panic defense 
with a transgender man when they found out he was transgender and killed him. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's what they used for Matthew Shepard was a gay panic defense. Yep. Um, but it was that was a legitimate defense in this country that you could claim. I thought a gay man was hitting on me, so I killed him. And they were like, OK. Yeah, that seems self-defense. Legitimate. Yeah. Also, like trans panic is another one. Yeah. A lot of trans people are murdered because somebody finds out that they're trans and freaks out. Um, and although these things are starting to get better, this defense is starting is starting to disappear. Like, they haven't disappeared. This is still stuff. So imagine my excitement when I thought we would have a story about the intersection of all of these identities. <laughs> and the wrongs yeah. of profiling and bigotry. Yeah. Only to find out that this movie features an undercover police... I'm going to explain what happens in this. Yeah, go ahead. An undercover police officer at the beginning of the movie tries to sell the boys a gun. For a minute, like, Malik is playing along and he's like, oh, I'll give you 75 when the cop asked for 200. So he plays along and he haggles. But then he turns him down. He's like, nah, get out of here. And then... The officer tells an FBI agent to keep an eye on them because they were looking to buy a gun. The FBI agent then follows Nas and Malik around Brooklyn, eventually confronting them and asking them questions. And Nas gets caught in a lie where he says he was somewhere he wasn't in order to protect his identity as a gay man. Because he was fucking his friend. Yeah. Which just goes ahead and piques the agent's interest in him. And in the end, he catches up with her and explains to her why he lied. He gets a slap on the wrist and told to stay out of trouble. Yeah. I thought it was going to be so much more interesting. That It I, was nothing. Yeah. Because I thought it was going to be the thing that ruined everything. This intersection of we're Muslim and none of our family can find out that we're gay versus we're being profiled for being black and Muslim. And so it was mm-hmm. like, which one has to give? Neither. Neither, neither one did. gave. Yeah. But some interesting things about the FBI agent, it, she made me so mad because I saw a lot of people talking about like how unrealistic it was. But the way she showed up and was like, can I ask you some questions? Like, I'm just trying to get to know the neighborhood. Like, nah, nah, nah. that felt very realistic to me. That like, mm-hmm. a, that patronizing tone. And I was like, it's Nas, don't talk to her. You don't have to talk to her. But I guess it's a little different if you're a person, a lot different if you're a person of color. You like, well, have the to- one person with sense in this whole movie is like, I think his name is Dan. They go to his house to like, try to form an alibi yes yeah yeah yeah. and he's as soon as she starts asking him questions he's like uh i'm gonna need to have a lawyer present if you want to talk to me and she's like why is something wrong and he's like no i just don't trust you yeah i was like that's a man who knows what he's doing which sucks because they're like 18 years old so they're old enough to be tried for something but they don't know Mm -hmm. a lot but everyone listening never talk to cops even if it's just a little like oh i just have a couple questions the the only response to a police officer is am am i free to go if they're at your house it's do you have a warrant Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah and never let a cop into your house without a warrant i thought this story was going to be something interesting about like you know the flaws of law enforcement like tied in with racial profiling tied in with this like worry about being outed to your family and then it was literally nothing yeah it was just like a slap on the wrist when she found out that they were just kissing 
there was something super weird about the way they treated law enforcement in this movie, too, which it felt like almost reverent. Because after Nas, who's a young, black, Muslim man, lies to an FBI agent... Like, I'm not saying that she should be arresting him, but, like, given the trajectory of racial politics and law enforcement in our country, she wouldn't let him off with a slap on the wrist. No. That's not going to happen. They're going to throw the book at him. Even though he, they didn't actually do anything. He just, They didn't, no. Yeah. But he, he did lie to a federal agent, which she reminds him is a federal crime. Yeah. Which is stupid, because, like... Ugh. He didn't even do anything to begin with. Like, that's... Yeah, he didn't, like, consent to interrogation. It's like people who get arrested for resisting arrest. It's like, well, why were you arresting them in the first place? <laughs> like, it shouldn't, yeah. it shouldn't stand. Like, you had no reason to be asking him these questions. He didn't commit a crime, so he should be allowed to lie about where he was. Yeah, um, exactly. It's very, very, very stupid. I just really didn't understand the plot trajectory at all. Yeah, it felt like it was boiling towards something. There's... So one of the other thoughts throughout the film that's very interesting was obviously these two are devout Muslims. They actually believe in this stuff where um, I feel like a lot of gay movies, if they're in some sort of conservative family, um, they don't necessarily still hold the faith on account of their queerness. It's more about their family's belief in whatever faith. But these two actually believe in Islam and it's... um, a lot of their conversations are about, are we breaking the rules? Are are mm-hmm. we being bad Muslims? This is actually voiced by Naz's younger sister who finds out that they're in this relationship and she yells, she tracks him down when he's on the street and tells him he's a bad Muslim. And, mm-hmm. and she says, you're not my brother. And it shows how much these people believe this where um, it reminded me of Love, Simon, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like, obviously, I remember at the time, like his sister, what she said, like, wasn't the most supportive, but it certainly wasn't this. Typically, the siblings in these movies are very supportive. And it just shows the privilege of someone like Simon's that even though he's going through all this angst of like, I'm gay, no one understands me. He has this whole fantasy sequence about like when he gets to college and he gets to be the person that he wants to be. But that's not a thought in this movie because it's between them and God. It's not necessarily the family. Mm-hmm. It's not something they're going to get away from by going to college. It's something that they're going to have to come to terms with for the rest of their yeah. lives, which um, was spoken about here and there, but never really came to a head. I think there's a weird chicken plot line. Yeah, there is a weird chicken plot line. I think maybe that's what that plot line was trying to say. In in which uh, Malik buys a live chicken and tells Nas that he has to butcher it in the halal form. Yeah, and then the chicken, Nas refuses to butcher it. They get in another fight because all they do is fight the whole movie and the chicken runs off the roof, lands on a car. That car crashes and the person in the car gets horribly injured and so a, a lot of people who've done reviews for the film, they're like, what is this weird plot line with the chicken? Because it doesn't come to anything and it comes out of nowhere. And I think it was him trying to have some sort of allusion to his 
issues with his religion are going to come to a head eventually. Mm-hmm. But um, instead of doing that, like he could have actually just had them come to a head. I also wonder if that's some sort of allusion to... Because bad things don't happen to them because they're gay in this movie. Mm-hmm. Which is good as a queer viewer. I don't want to watch, you know, queer torture all the time. But I think it's kind of interesting that it's when he won't prepare a chicken for a halal dinner that like something terrible happens it's kind of like this is the affront against god not the gayness Mm -hmm. so i have this book called queer magic and i pulled it out this morning um and it goes religion by religion and the history of queerness with each religion and so Mm -hmm. i pulled out the uh islam chapter and i remember that one being kind of you know the least forgiving um because every religion in the world even going to like like African tribal mysticism has a Mm -hmm. lot more of a queer past than we are led to believe. But I remembered Islam being the least forgiving. (laughs) And so I pulled that up because I believe there is absolutely an understanding. Everyone points to the Middle East as the most, you know, anti-queer, anti-feminist, least tolerant place in the world, which isn't always true. In the U.S., like American Muslims, there are actually some recent polls that are weird. Like, it doesn't really help understand what's going on. But, um, like, a recent poll said that American Muslims, 52%, thought that society should change to better accept LGBT persons. But another poll asking people if they identified as gay and lesbian said that 0% of Muslims in the United States identify as gay and lesbian, which is not true. It's not true. Um, But it just (laughs) kind of... I know some gay Muslims. Yeah. But it shows this disparity there. um, And some attributed it to the way that Muslims are treated in this country. They'll take any allies they can get. And so Mm. in that way, they're um, trying to be more accepting of LGBT persons, but not necessarily within the church, because it's a little different than Christianity, where you can find some churches that'll like, that'll be more liberal. Yeah. In like every major city, you'll find something where- There's an episode of Queer Eye about a pastor who's gay. Yeah. Where there's only five out- gay imams in the world and we have one in the u.s in washington dc and a reason for this this difference here oh and by the way the only um other religion in the u.s who had less favorable views of lgbt rights were white evangelicals oh imagine that yeah but it just kind of shows like it's well the muslims aren't the worst as much as everyone would like you to think that they're the least tolerant. It's actually white evangelicals. So imagine that. But a reason why there's kind of this difference where there are, you can, you can, if you really look, you can still be a Christian, you know, once you're an adult and you have the freedom to go to whatever church you want to go to. And that we don't really see that in the Muslim community in the United States as much. 
is because the a real difference between the Quran and the Bible, it's still up for some debate about whether the Bible is the exact word of God, if it's his disciples were kind of translating the word of God, if it's, you know, written record of things people were saying, is it mistranslated? It's more up for interpretation oh, where yeah. the Quran in the original Arabic is the word of God and is undisputed. And that's where Sharia law comes from, is the undisputed word of God is in the Quran, where they even believe that the Quran translated into any different language is just a commentary. It's not actually the Quran. The only Quran is that's true. Christians don't necessarily think that about the Bible. Like, it's still the Bible. Well, because it was originally written in Hebrew. And how many Christians speak Hebrew or read Hebrew? Seven. But yeah, for that reason, there's not as much discussion about, like, how do we interpret this? How do we interpret Sodom and Gomorrah? Where you can, it's not very common in the United States. Like, my, uh, in uh, Christian churches, like my church, it wasn't up for discussion. We believed that the Bible was the word of God. But you can't. You can argue about it and you can say, this is mistranslated. And uh, Jesus said this, and I think I, you know, I interpret it this way and this way and this way, which is just not a thing for the Quran. Though it is interesting, they talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Nas and Mal- Malik, um, and even they say like the sin of Sodom was rape, not homosexuality, which is an interpretation in and of itself. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was really interesting because that in itself is like anti-Muslim to like to be interpreting it that way. And I've seen that interpretation on the Bible side of it. People arguing mm-hmm. that, saying that that was mistranslated. And so I think that's kind of interesting also that he was drawn to he bought these Christian saint cards and was selling them. There was just so much more commentary that could be probably made about Nas that just wasn't. <laughs> that, I know. That he was perhaps bringing in these Western influences into how he interpreted his Muslim identity certainly carries a weight throughout the movie that anytime they're starting to get a little hot and heavy, he's like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't. And not because they think they're going to get caught, but because it is against the rules of Islam. I would just hope any gay Muslims out there are finding a way to practice their faith and believe that they're not incorrect because they were born this way. And it's fine. You are valid. Okay, so final thoughts. Catherine? I think as with any media that we don't think is as great as it should be, it should just be a call to make something else in that vein, to create more. Absolutely. should have more stories about intersections because it's a very interesting intersection and I wish I could have learned more about it. I agree with that. Yeah. I guess my final thought would be, I mean, I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad I got to see this story. Because, like I said earlier, lackluster representation is better than no representation. representation, Yeah. And also way better than stereotypes. Yeah. So, I I mean, this movie really just feels like it was exploring the intersection without actually doing a whole lot with it. Which, you know, there's place for that kind of media. It's just not particularly my interest level. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, keep creating. Even if you're just exploring things that, like, even if you're... Stuff is going to be mediocre. Just make it. Just put it, it out there, man. That's kind of the problem with having so little representation is be- that like we now look at these movies of like, this has to be perfect. This has to be the representation of all black gay Muslims because this is the only movie I know of about it, you know? Right. Just make more. Just make more. We have a thousand superhero movies. <laughs> yeah, for real. Okay. 
Now it's time for Catherine's chest of nice things. Mm-hmm. Last Christmas, I got Catherine a treasure chest and I filled it with sentimental musings and inside jokes and sweet things about her. So on this podcast, we make her open one every single episode as a form of self-love because that's what this podcast is all about. Queer self-love. I hate self-love. Okay, let's do this. Ew. Ew. Thank you for being my sister in all but blood. Growing up, I always wanted a sister, so I'm glad it was you. Ugh. I'm not <laughs> I'm not your sister, I'm your uncle. You're my uncle. Thank mm-hmm. you for being my uncle. You're so welcome. Niece. <laughs> all, right. all right. Shall we sign off? Yeah, let's get the fuck out of here. You, my friends, have been listening to Queer Pressure Podcasts and our critical explorations of queer media as a continued practice of self-love with Katherine Johnson. And Maddie Gray. Hey, you. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing, following, or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. You have no idea how much it helps small, self-funded podcasts like us to get exposure. You can also follow us on social media. We post memes, new episode announcements, and sometimes polls each and every week. So if you want to follow us, search for at QueerPressurePC on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Once again, that's QueerPressurePC for podcast. Not for pants catastrophe. That one's fantastic. Ten points, you win. Ten points to nothing because we don't know of any media that has houses that get points. Anyways. Nope, never heard of it. Never heard of it. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And as always, fuck the police.